Well, we are in our second week in a series on forgiveness. And I mentioned last week that we're going from uh, a more grim look at what happens when you don't forgive towards a place of celebration of forgiveness and release. And as you could tell probably from that text reading, we're not quite into the joyful moment quite yet. Uh, this is a very challenging text, and we're going to have a lot to wrestle with uh, as we move through this. I do want to remind folks that uh, if you weren't here last week or if you didn't get a rock, uh, we put the instructions at the back of the bulletin, not the back page, but that last, like page seven, I think. Um, if you want to grab a rock on the way out, uh, you can do so. If you want to use one of our paint markers, my only little logistical tip, if you've never used paint markers, is it requires a lot of shaking it up. Uh, if you want to write someone's name or something that identifies that rock with somebody that you would want to forgive. Um, I, I don't think we're quite at that point yet where we've made it to what forgiveness fully looks like, where maybe we're ready to release our forgiveness rocks quite yet. But I'm hoping that by the end of this message series that maybe we'll have thought about some sort of person or something that we want to let go of and that we want to release and want to have forgiveness for. Uh, but today... I want to talk about the limits of forgiveness and when we're reluctant about forgiveness and where we want to find that border and that boundary of, well, how much is enough? Can I just forgive just, just a certain amount? How much is enough? And just to set the scene, Jesus is finishing a bunch of teachings in the text that we, we read this morning. And the last thing that he read before our text was uh, it was talking about if someone in your community sins against you, how to kind of reconcile with them and to go with them one-on-one. -on -one. And if that doesn't work, bring somebody with you. And so after this kind of reconciliation talk, Peter comes up and he asks a question that, le that leads us off this morning. Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? And the first thing I want to note is the New Revised Standard Version, that translation that we have, uh, maybe, maybe somewhat disguises what's happening in that first century context. Uh, Peter wouldn't be asking about the church historically in that moment. The Greek text only says brother. So it's like, so, you know, my community member, that person that's close to me, if that person sins against me, how often should I forgive them? But the translation's fine for us because we're applying it to the church context, and so you can think of that. But I don't think it's only about the church context. It's, it's a wider community uh, question. But he asks, how many times should I forgive? And maybe he's being a teacher's pet when he offers up an answer, kind of floats an answer to the question. Uh, what about seven times? Would that be enough? And... That, that might be a generous thing. Like, he might think that he's being really generous by offering seven times, because a lot of rabbinical teachings talk about uh, only three times that you had to forgive. And they would base that on this text in Amos, where one of the minor prophets said, well, for three things that you've done wrong, but for the fourth, I'm going to judge you. And so it's kind of the series of statements in Amos that say, for that fourth thing, that's finally what's going to get you judgment because I can't take it any longer. So they base that for their teachings on forgiveness and say, okay, you only have to forgive someone three times. So maybe Peter thinks he's being incredibly generous and saying, well, how about seven times? And so Jesus responds, though, saying, not seven times, but I tell you, 
77 times. Whatever you take as the generous thing, Jesus tends to magnify it. And we might not catch the illusion here. In Genesis 4, we get that initial uh, violence in the biblical text of Cain murdering his brother Abel. And in that story, God comes and he pronounces judgment that Cain has to wander. He has to go out and leave and live in isolation. And Cain's afraid of that, and he, he wants some sort of protection. And so the Lord says to him, whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And he put a mark on Cain so that no one who would come upon him would kill him. So God tells him, you have the seven times of protection of, of if someone were to harm you in retaliation, uh, God's going to judge you seven times harsher. But only five generations later, in that same chapter of Genesis, we hear about Cain's descendant Lamech, who boasts of his own murderous ways, exceeding even Cain. And he says, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And then he goes on to say, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, 77-fold. And so the phrasing is actually the same as in our text. And so there's this kind of original sin and violence and retaliation story in which uh, if you were to retaliate, God's going to bring 77 times of judgment. And so maybe that's that echo that Jesus is, is reminiscent of here in this text of, well, how many times should I forgive my brother, uh, seven times, and that's not enough, exceeded to even that, that even more massive scale of 77 times. But I, I think we're still wrong, though, if we think it's about actually counting off to 77 times. Uh, it's not meant to be that particular and to be uh, literal in that way. And that was making me think about, a few years back, uh, Beth's family came to visit. They just recently came to visit us here. Um, but they came to visit us back when we were in Milwaukee, and one of the things that they wanted to do was have a family devotion time. And so uh, we listened to someone who talked through a scripture passage and was offering their advice and their suggestions of how to improve your kind of inner family conflicts. And their suggestion was, well, instead of our natural tendency to count how many things that someone's done wrong against you, you kind of keep looking for them and keep counting them, that person's suggestion was we should count how many good things that they've done for us and count all of the positive things that they do. And so at the end of this, uh, the family's talking and then they turn to me and they ask, what, well, what did you think? I was like, you know, I think it's still missing the point. I think if you're still counting, you're still counting. And that's only going to lead to still more strife and more, more frustration and conflict because what if, well, I know I did 30 good things for you, but you only did seven good things for me. And we're still comparing. And so I think we're in trouble if, if our mindset about forgiveness is counting anything. Counting how many times I have forgiven, counting how many, counting how many times someone's harmed me, or how many times someone hasn't forgiven. Um, the game of counting is a fruitless task and, and doesn't get us outside of those bounds and those fights that we're in the midst of. Jesus follows this up, though, the very unusual parable. I feel like that, if we just, had, just, just took those couple verses, we could feel pretty good just with, okay, well, let's not count. Uh, but then Jesus tells this, this parable, and he says that there's a king who decided to collect on the debts that were owed to him. And a certain servant had a massive debt. I'm talking, he has 
student loans from Harvard. He bought a house before the 2008 housing crisis. Maybe he's bought stock in uh, Enron or Blockbuster or any sort of department store. Um, He has a ton of debt. And it's really hard to actually get at what that exactly equals for us because there's inflation in the ancient world. Money didn't stay stable then. And it doesn't stay stable now. So are you just comparing it just to our U.S. economy in this moment? Uh, But I'm going to give you a few things just to give you the grandness and the scale of this this debt. Uh, A talent was a measurement, um, it was like a weight of gold, silver, or copper. So there's differing opinions exactly on the exact amount, between 60 and 90 pounds of gold, silver, or copper. And it was the largest type of currency, a talent. And so in the New Testament times, there's a, there's a historian named Josephus in the first century who writes about how much taxes were collected in the whole region of Israel. And in a given year, there was less than 1,000 talents of tax taken from that whole land. And so this guy owes 10,000 talents. That's more than any one person could actually pay. And so he's supposed to owe more than this whole region even gives in a given year. And so if you were to equate 10,000 talents into how many kind of average pay years of a day laborer, he would have owed more than 160,000 years of day labor. That is a massive debt. And maybe this is meant to be hyperbolic, like parables tend to do. They push things to the limits. And so here's this massive debt that the servant brings with him. And so he shows up, and he can't pay the debt, obviously. And so his family and him are going to get sold into slavery. And that's a little bit weird, probably, if you notice in the text. He's already a slave. He's going to get sold into slavery. So he's going to get sent into some sort of worse condition, sold to someone in a lesser position, someone who uh, maybe will mistreat him, whatever the case is. But he's not going to make much money off of selling this guy's family. To show you the comparison, the average slave in that time frame only amounted to one-third of a talent. He owes 10000 So you're not collecting on your, your debt through selling him into slavery. Nevertheless, here's the man pleading on his knees. He's like, have patience. Just give me more time. I'll pay it. And that's an optimist there. I just need a little bit of time. Uh, And so there he is pleading for his his life. And the king is moved by compassion in the story. It says that uh, out of pity for him, he's going to release him. And that's actually one of my favorite New Testament words because of something really kind of funny going on in the King James Version. This word splanknon, which is the seat of the innermost part of your emotions, Uh, We get the verbal form in this text about he's moved by this seat of emotions. Uh, But if you read the King James Version of Philemon, verse 7, Paul thanks someone for refreshing the bowels of the saints. Our language has changed quite a bit since that translation. Uh, But that's where he was saying, like, that seat of your emotion in your stomach, in your gut. And we tend to say, in your heart. That's how we usually use that language. But he's moved in the heart. He's moved where his emotion rests. And he has compassion, and he forgives the servant of that entire massive debt. And so that should be our happy ending. That would be simple good news. That would be a great 
stopping point. Uh, No matter how massive uh, of problems that you've caused or harms that you've done or debts that you've owed, there is no scale in which you can't be forgiven. And that's a great message, but sadly we have to keep going in the story. And so the servant leaves a forgiven man, but not a forgiving one. And on his way out, he finds a fellow servant who owes him money. And we don't know what he's thinking, how he might have been traumatized, even though he was forgiven. Maybe he's thinking, I never want to have to go through that again. I never want to have to rely on anybody else. I need to collect on all of my debts because I, I, I can't risk that ever again. We don't know what he's thinking. But this, this new servant owes him 100 denarii. And so that means we need to compare to figure out the scale of what's owed. A denarii, uh, so a denarius is worth a day's labor work. So an average pay would have been a, den- a denarius. And so 100 denarii is 100 days works. And um, 6,000 denarii equals one talent. If you remember, this guy had owed 10,000 talents. So th- this second guy owes him hardly anything in comparison. He, uh, this, this denarius, um, it would take 60 million of them to equal what he owed the original guy. So it's a drop in the bucket. And so now the roles are reversed, and that forgiven servant gets to play the part of the king, and the other guy goes down on his knees, and he's, in, he's pleading, have patience on me. And what does he do? The forgiven servant grabs him by the throat and goes for the throat and sends him off into prison and has no mercy and no forgiveness even though he was just forgiven. And that might also seem hyperbolic. We've dealt with hyperbolic amounts of money owed and maybe this response feels hyperbolic, but sadly it's not always hyperbolic. We, we actually do this in our own lives. And I was thinking about um, You know, if we were to compare the CEOs of that 2008 housing crisis, where it came out that many of them had uh, um, been a part of fraud and other kinds of irresponsible actions, that in estimates cost the country $23 trillion of damages, yet there was no punishments. And in fact, more than no punishments, they were given $125 billion in bailouts, and they gave themselves out of that $20 billion in bonuses. Uh, So a massive debt can be forgiven and and given all sorts of even bonuses on top of it. And yet, if you live in a state with three strikes laws, you are likely to hear a story of someone who commits some little tiny petty theft who gets mandatory minimum sentencing of things like 20 years to life like a Louisiana man who faced 20 years to life for stealing $31 of candy from a convenience store. Sometimes we can be incredibly forgiving to people with massive debts, and that one person who forgot your birthday, who uh, said something critical of you, whatever that small level thing is, and you just can't let that one go. And so I think even though this is appalling and there's a moral outrage that you imagine the story and that we're going to see the fellow servants feel that, we are actually tempted into the same kind of activity. Even though much can be forgiven, 
sometimes the smallest thing is hard for us to forgive. And so, this moves us to the most challenging part of our story. And it's challenging because the king in this story is, is continually kind of being compared to God. Our story began and end with, uh, here's verse 23, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And in closing, verse 35, So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So when we're going to see the king act uh, quite violently in a moment, that's in part really challenging for us because we're comparing that to God, and that's very, very scary for us. So after just one single extravagant level forgiveness in the story, when the king hears what this forgiven servant did and how unforgiving he became, he revokes that original forgiveness. He takes it away completely. He was originally moved by compassion, by heart. And then now we hear he's moved by anger. And what does he do when he's angry? He goes for the throat in his own way. He has the man sent to prison. Not just sent to prison, but it says in the text, to be tortured. And that's really what strikes me very harshly too, is like, it's not just about collecting on the debts and what, what's required, but there's a retaliation, a vengeance level that, that you can feel in the text. And so that's not restorative justice. That's not bringing about justice to bring about change in somebody. That's punitive. That's just to be punishing, just to be violent. And I might add, he doesn't do anything in the story to help the other guy that got thrown into prison. Uh, so that's what he's mad about, was that you weren't forgiving the other, but they just kind of leave that guy in prison in the parable, which uh, feels sad for the other guy. But I think what's really concerning is it turns out that the king in the story's forgiveness was conditional. It was conditional based on whether that servant would then go and be forgiving. And so that's incredibly scary if we're pushing that on to God, of is God only forgiving or loving based solely on if I'm forgiving and loving? So what happens on that moment when I'm not forgiving or loving? Does, does God lash out at me? And that's what's, what's scary about this text and frightening about this text. And so I think uh, maybe you feel like me that this parable doesn't really fit super well with that question that started us out. When Peter asks, how many times should I forgive? 77. And yet we get this story where there's this one forgiveness of something great, but then that's it. It's cut off. There's no more forgiveness opportunities. And, and I think that's part of what scares us. I, I thought there'd be more opportunities for forgiveness. And so it seems like this, this parable is trying to warn us or scare us into forgiving. But I don't, I don't think anybody can be scared into forgiveness. Even if we try to force our kids to forgive, you know, every time they do something wrong, like, say you're sorry. Um, we're, we're hoping to we're not assuming that they've actually fully forgiven, but we're trying to, to kind of disciple them and train them into at some point truly accepting and being able to forgive. But we can't coerce forgiveness. I can't force it on anybody. Forgiveness is a free gift. And so in the midst of this challenging text, what can we take away? 
I think, like our original story, we can't forgive by counting numbers. It's not about counting how much is owed or how many times I've forgiven. And if we play that game, we won't be able to truly forgive. We can't forgive while we're acting in anger. If you remember last week with Jonah, that's what was going on in Jonah's life. He's so angry and so upset, he just wants to see his enemies perish. And he, he just hates that God, and the story, he says, is slow to anger. And I, don't, I think we also can't be scared into forgiving with all of our heart. This passage ended with the quote, So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And so I'm saying this morning that there's no such thing as reluctant forgiveness. I think that we all have seen scripted apologies where we didn't feel someone's heart was in it. Somebody got caught about something, so they're, re- they're releasing a statement online. Maybe you heard it on the news or on Twitter or wherever you get stories. Um, but we don't tend to trust scripted apologies. We hate when people say, I'm sorry that you felt offended. We want to know that you feel sorry that you harmed someone, that you did something wrong. You can't forgive reluctantly because you have to forgive with your whole heart. If you want to know how to forgive, how to get out of the prison of unforgiveness, you can't do it reluctantly. Forgiveness is not about half-hearted attempts. You can't do forgiveness half-heartedly. And the result of unforgiveness and reluctant forgiveness is that we remain imprisoned. The memories of the past remain our torturers as our hurt continues. The anger that we have isolates us. And so we don't need God to step in and and cause us harm or to torment us. We are already living in the midst of that torture and that harm and that anger. So when we aren't willing to forgive, we are living out those pains. So if you're on the fence about whether to forgive, I hope that you can find your whole heart again, that splanking on your inner seat of emotion. And that's not easy, because when you've been hurt, when you've been harmed, you tend to close off. You don't want to open yourself up again, because if I'm vulnerable, I can get hurt. And so that I hope that we can find our heart and that compassion, because when we find that heart and that compassion, we're able to offer forgiveness, and we're also able to get ourselves out of the torture cell of unforgiveness. So if if you're on that fence and reluctant about forgiving others today, I hope that this this month would help continue to, uh, to guide us and lead us and push us towards the release of forgiveness. And we're going to get to the happy form of forgiveness where you actually fully embrace it and you release it and you see what that looks like. But right now, it it would be disingenuous if we didn't sit with the fact that forgiveness is hard and that we don't always want to forgive and there's bad effects of that. And even if I'm just kind of wanting to look at the edge of it, where's the limits of it? Um, We're not fully embracing forgiveness. So, I, I don't want you to leave with this text feeling like God is going to harm you because we've already been harmed. 
And so I hope what we're calling ourselves to and what we're hoping for is getting that release. We're going to talk more about that release in the next few weeks. So if you want to get out of prison, of unforgiveness, give your whole heart over to God, and you'll find a forgiving God waiting with compassion, without limits. Lord, we come before you knowing that you've already forgiven us of so much. Lord, we have harmed and hurt and neglected and isolated so many in our lives. Yet we have found forgiveness. Lord, help us to offer forgiveness and to offer apologies and to offer uh, reconciliation when that's possible. Lord, I, I just ask that you would touch our hearts, that you would move them from anger, from coldness towards compassion, and that you'd help us see that there is no benefit to staying in anger Lord, just work in us. Help us to forgive as you've forgiven. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen. Um, your hymn can be found in your bulletin, All to Jesus I Surrender.
Well, friends, uh, just a minute after I say my benediction, I'm going to be out in the back um, past the doors. And after you sing the benediction song, if you, if you haven't got a rock or if you realize you've got a lot of forgiving to do and you want to get a few more rocks, whatever it is, um, please do that on the way out. I hope that uh, you will join us for Sunday school and for all the other kinds of things that we've got going on. Um, and I do hope, uh, I, I don't want the service to be a burden and to feel like a weight. I like it to be releasing and letting go of weights. So uh, I do hope you'll be back next week and the week after as we finish the series on forgiveness, where we get to that hopeful thing and to releasing and to the, the joy of forgiveness. Uh, and so with that, hear this word. May our hardened hearts be softened. May our broken hearts be mended. May our empty hearts be filled so that you may be forgiving and forgiven. Amen.